Exacerbated by the pandemic, obesity affects communities of color disproportionately due to systemic racism and other health inequities. These inflammatory markers actually increase stress, actually increase storage of fat. So if we don't address racism, which is commonplace and we see play out every day as our young black girls and boys are being killed just for living and being, then we're not going to be able to tackle obesity in the way we need to do to decrease the disparities that we see, particularly amongst individuals that are from the black community. Now, we know that there's also disproportionate um, so that we see issues within communities of color as a whole. That's Dr. Fatima Cody-Stanford, Director of the Nutrition Obesity Research Center at Harvard, Massachusetts General Hospital. On this episode of Moving Medicine, Sharia Thompson, Principal and Founder of the IRIS Collaborative, is joined by Tammy Boyd, Chief Policy Officer and Counsel at the Black Women's Health Imperative. Joe Netglowski, President and CEO of the Obesity Action Coalition, and Nikki Massey, Board Member of the Obesity Action Coalition for a discussion on obesity in communities of color. I'm your host, Todd Unger, Chief Experience Officer at the American Medical Association. Here's Sharia Thompson. And I'm excited to be joined by this esteemed group of panelists to actually unpack more about how obesity in communities of color and a closer look in addressing those existing disparities can actually um, advance equity. Uh, we are looking forward to getting started and I'm gonna just quickly tell you who we're joined by today. And then we're gonna actually allow each of them to tell us a bit more about how they're working to end disparities um, in communities of color. I'm Shiria Thompson. I'm the principal and founder of the Iris Collaborative. Uh, we're also today joined by uh, Tammy Boyd, who is the chief policy officer and counsel at the Black Women's Health Imperative. Uh, we also have Dr. Fatima Cody-Stanford, who is the director of the Nutrition Obesity Research Center at Harvard, Massachusetts General Hospital, Harvard Medical School. And she's also a fellow 40 under 40. And we also have Joe Naglowski, who is the president and CEO of the Obesity Action Coalition. And uh, we will be joined, oh, uh, Nikki has been able to join us uh, as well, uh, who is going to bring that patient perspective. And she is the chair of the Obesity Action Coalition Inclusive, Inclusivity, excuse me, and Diversity Committee. Uh, and they, uh, she and Joe work together uh, doing the incredible work, bringing the patient voice to this work. So we're gonna go ahead and get started and hear from each of you. So uh, Dr. Fatima, if you'd like to start, we'd love to hear a little bit more about how you're bringing the provider voice, the physician voice um, into the work that you do and the role you play in addressing obesity disparities. Dr. Fatima? Absolutely. Well, thanks so much for having me this morning. Um, as was stated, I'm an obesity medicine physician scientist here at Mass General Hospital and at Harvard Medical School. Um, and, you know, I'm really keen. And what brought me to this work actually in obesity was the disproportionate impact that we see on communities of color, but particularly amongst Black women. What we do know, if we're looking at U.S. adults, that 42.4% of U.S. adults have this disease of obesity based upon 2018 data, which is the most current data we have out of the CDC. Um, but we have this disproportionate impact of obesity, particularly in Black women. And I have been really committed to figuring out why this is. 
people presume it's just because we have things that we choose to do, you know, that it's our fault, like, oh, maybe we don't want to get our hair wet. And, you know, we want to do our hair to look great, um, which is something that, for example, Regina Benjamin brought up in her role as um, Surgeon General, if you recall. Um, and that is indeed a, definitely one thing. But is that really the end all be all for why women may be that Black women are less active? I would say not necessarily. And we have to think about racism and its implications for excess weight within the communities of color. For example, the Black Women's Health Study, which is the largest cohort study that's ever been done in Black women to date, has shown that both everyday and lifetime racism lead to a poor um, health response, but specifically higher levels of obesity. And what we think is associated with that racism is increased stress, which leads to increased inflammation and deposition of what we call adipose. Adipose tissue is fat tissue, but particularly in the area we don't want it which is in our midsection, which of course leads to other chronic diseases like diabetes, fatty liver disease, for example. Um, I have been working to really delve into this higher prevalence of obesity within black women. What we do know is about 60% of black women have obesity, about 20% have overweight, which means that we have 80% of black women that have overweight and obesity. And these numbers are pronounced and I think it's the issue that we are not dealing with. We've seen this rise to the level of significant importance as we've seen this COVID obesity connection. We have this chronic inflammatory condition of the obesity interacting negatively with this acute inflammatory process of COVID-19. And that is what's contributing to this greater risk of both sickness, need for ventilator use, and unfortunately dying from COVID-19. And the reality is that this is indeed hitting our families. When I think about my family itself, my parents have lost 16 of their friends to COVID-19. 16, I cannot put those fingers up to show you. My best friend lost her father to COVID. One of my mentees, one of the top 40 under 40 that's looking today, lost both parents to COVID-19 three weeks apart, one on Easter Sunday last year, and then one three Sundays later. This has affected us and it's affecting us regardless of our socioeconomic status. Um, we know that obesity is playing a role and we really need to hone in. My goal is to offer the best possible care as it relates to treatment for those that have this disease of obesity, whether we're looking at metabolic and bariatric surgery for those that have moderate to severe obesity, the use of pharmacotherapy agents for those that um, would require lesser um, care, but and then just really care along the continuum, We're looking at lifestyle modification, behavioral interventions to complement this need to treat this chronic disease of obesity. And so I'll stop there. So I can lend the mic to my fellow, um, I guess, panelists here, but this is really the, the work that I'm doing along with the research efforts I'm doing to really begin to understand why we see this higher prevalence of obesity and how we can tackle it and address it within the Black community particularly. Exactly. So you hit on a number of points, but I'm going to head over to Tammy and she's going to talk a little bit more about the role she plays and bring that policy voice to it. So Tammy, can you share a little bit more about your role? Yes, absolutely. So I'm Tammy Boyd. Um, as mentioned, I am the Chief Policy Officer and Counsel for the Black Women's Health Imperative. Um, and Black Women's Health Imperative is a um, national nonprofit organization um, dedicated um, to advancing health equity and social justice for Black women, really across the lifespan um, through policy, advocacy, education, research, and leadership development. 
And the organization, BWHI, we really identify the most pressing health issues that affect the nation's 22 million Black women and girls. Um, and so for us, what we um, bring to the conversation is that obviously we are um, very um, concerned about um, obesity and how it impacts, um, as we've heard um, from Dr. Stanford, um, how it disproportionately impacts uh, communities of color and for us specifically, uh, Black women. So we are concerned um, with just the overall continuum of care for obesity from the eating healthy food and um, physical movement, which we have a change your lifestyle program, behavior modification, obesity modification, surgical procedures, and just maintaining mental health. So we are very um, um, interested in what we bring to the work is the overall um, continuum of care for obesity. Thank you, Tammy. Uh, Black Women's Health Imperative and your work has uh, certainly been a leader in this space and presented a number of conversations of a positive patient-focused lens. So I really appreciate that. And with that in mind, we're gonna head to kind of the patient advocacy part of today's uh, panelist and hear from uh, Joe, and then we'll hear from Nikki. So Joe, if you can tell us a little bit more about your role, and also if you'd like to highlight how you and Nikki work together to bring that patient lens. Sure, thanks again for uh, having me today. I really appreciate the opportunity to be here. And so I run the Obesity Action Coalition, which is the patient advocacy organization in the obesity space. We're actually an organization of people who live with obesity, who are, are working together to support each other. And we spend much of our time, and I won't belabor this because I'll let Nikki have a chance to talk about it as well. We spend much of our time trying to reduce the stigma around obesity, meaning, um, you know, let's make it okay to talk about obesity. Let's make it okay to ask for help to address your obesity. And then of course, because we're asking people to make it okay for them to ask for help, we spend a lot of time on policy efforts to make sure that if you want help, you have access to it. And uh, Dr. Stanford did a great job talking about what the continuum of care would be in her opening remarks. But I spend much of my time doing that and do it through a broader coalition. It's just not OEC as the patient. So I also co-chair a group called the Obesity Care Advocacy Network which really is focusing on how do we change the perception and approaches to address obesity. And the cool thing about OCAN is it's such a broad coalition. In fact, Tammy sits on that, Dr. Stanford sits on that, and, and, and others at OEC and, and the other groups involved sit in that as well uh, to be able to kind of take this broader approach to addressing obesity. Um, because it won't just be the patient advocates, it's gonna be a combination of all of us that have to work together. And it's again, just not obesity groups, right? It has to be those that, live in the associated conditions, who are working on specialty care groups like the Black Women's Health Imperative, others that participate to be able to change the world. So thanks again for having me today. Thank you, Joe. So Nikki, we're going to hear from you. And I just am so grateful that you're able to join us today because you've got such an excellent perspective and you um, share your story with such grace. So can you tell us a little bit more about your role? Um, so I um, serve on the National Board of the Obesity Action Coalition, and then I chair the Inclusivity and Diversity um, Task Force. And I started out with the OAC as just a person who herself um, is living with obesity and wanting to connect with others. Um, when I found out about the mission of the OAC, I was very happy because as Joe said, there's a lot of emphasis on making it okay to talk about obesity. I know that in my life, um, it is a family affair. My mom was affected by obesity. My dad still is affected by obesity. My children, um, cousins, aunts, uncles. And so, you know, building sort of this culture of talking about it 
uh, you know, not as, you know, a negative, uh, a negative trait of a, of a person and as a health problem. It was very, really, really important to me to build that culture. But then when we started talking about inclusivity and diversity, um, just sort of making sure that we, number one, are being inclusive in, in our imagery. Uh, one of the things I love about the, how the OAC uh, approaches imagery is portraying the whole person. So, you know, you often see like very, very uh, stigmatizing photos of people with obesity, like maybe just their midsection or they're sitting in front of a triple cheeseburger and you know they, they really have been working to like get you know people with obesity go biking they take walks they cook for their families they interact and all of these different things but then also making sure that all types of people um, see themselves in that imagery and then also making sure that we're being honest about the fact that obesity does not affect every population the same way um, and that different interventions may or may not work with different populations and keeping in those conversations so that so that we can have a real conversation about where this disparity, bias, um, inequity exists and work to uh, address those things. Well, thank you. You you brought out a number of points that actually bring me back to uh, Dr. Fatima. And um, along the lines of what you do, obviously, as the physician and the specialist here, um, I wanted to talk to you a bit more. You actually recently shared how obesity is a manifestation of systemic racism can you tell us more about, um, you know, what led you to um, share that and the work that you're doing to really um, talk about the intersection of racism and obesity? Well, you know, I think, first of all, thanks for that question, because I love to talk about this topic. But I think that, you know, when we look at what's happened over the last year, year plus with this COVID-19 pandemic, is that we've seen a collision really of three pandemics. And the three pandemics were COVID-19, followed by obesity, and I would say obesity maybe was a precursor, right? And then racism, which has been here as, as the early precursor. And the collision of these three have been magnified in the current status of what we're seeing. And so um, it's unfortunate, but I began to really see how those the interplay of those three pandemics has really led to worsened outcomes. So I recently published a beat piece, an entire piece on how we can begin to address racism and its implications for obesity within the black community. We know that when we experience racism um, that we feel significant stress. Sometimes you just, you know, kind of walk it off. Sometimes you might actually, you know, go and do a march as we've seen with, you know, the murders of George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor to just name the three that were most prominent during this COVID-19. But let's look at what just happened last week or this week that we're seeing in North Carolina. This constant stress leads to inflammation in the body. We see elevated levels of IL-1, IL-6, TNF-alpha, MCP-1, tumor necrosis factor alpha. You don't have to remember all those things, but these inflammatory markers actually increase stress, actually increase storage of fat. So if we don't address racism, which is commonplace and we see play out every day as our young black girls and boys are being killed just for living and being, then we're not going to be able to tackle obesity in the way we need to do to decrease the disparities that we see, particularly amongst individuals that are from the black community. Now, we know that there's also disproportionate um, so that we see issues within communities of color as a whole within the Hispanic community or the Latinx community, we see high rates of obesity. Within the Native American community, we're also seeing it. You know, and so we do have this interplay of potential um, disenfranchised groups experiencing stressors that lead to an increase in obesity. 
we have to recognize that these things do not operate in a silo. There's integration and we need to have a multifactorial, multi-pronged approach to address these issues as they exist together in the same milieu. So hopefully um, that helps kind of understand why I've begun to address this. And I told you what brought me to this work was looking at the disparities that existed back when I was brought to this work many years ago. No, that, that was excellent. And you spoke to many of those social determinants that you know many of us are aware of. Um, and I'd love later on, we're gonna get more into those best practices and those frameworks um, because we're not here to admire the problem. We really wanna make sure that people can leave today um, knowing how to connect with each of you to actually advance the work in their own communities or look for tools to actually overcome some of the barriers that they're facing in their work as well. Um, so I'm going to head over to Tammy and actually talk a little bit more about how policy can play a role in addressing obesity uh, disparities. And then if you can share a little bit more on the current state of coverage um, for anti-obesity medications and how can we get better coverage. Um, and I know that you're going to be able to give us some examples, uh, Tammy, but if you can speak to the policy piece and let us know what's the current status with Medicare and Medicaid. Yes, um, and, and, and to um, uh, the legislation of the policy that's um, on the Hill that we're currently supporting um, that addresses obesity, it's called TROA. Um, it's the Treat and Reduce Obesity Act of 2021. Um, it was recently introduced in March um, and in the Senate and the House by Senators Tom Carper and Bill Cassidy um, and Congressman Ron Kind and Tom Reed and um, Raul Ruiz. Um, and, and the bill aims to effectively treat and reduce obesity in older Americans by enhancing Medicare beneficiaries' access um, to healthcare providers um, that are best suited to provide intensive um, behavioral therapy, but then also, um, for us, most importantly, by providing access, allowing Medicare Part D to cover um, food and um, to cover um, um, FDA-approved um, obesity drugs. Um, and really for us, it's really to help people of color living um, with obesity. You know, we need to ensure that they have access to the full range of comprehensive obesity care, um, including lifestyle um, counseling um, and other medical interventions included, um, including FDA uh, medications and surgery. Um, so we are really working to, to help elevate obesity as a serious chronic disease affecting communities of color, uh, particularly um, for black women. Um, and I don't know, Joe may have uh, more to add here as well. Um, but yes, we, um, only on Capitol Hill, there's an effort around um, the TROA Act of 2021. Thank you, that's excellent. Joe, would you like to weigh in? I know that you're partnering in advocacy. You can't do it alone. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate that. And, and I think uh, Tammy did a great job talking about the Treat and Reduce Obesity Act. I, I think our, our goal, of course, is to make it so that if you see someone like Dr. Stanford and they want to help you with your obesity that you have access to the treatment options that are out there, right? And there are evidence-based treatment options out there. And so it is very important that uh, people have access. And you might ask us, well, Joe, why Medicare, right? I mean, that, is that directly affecting us? But I think everyone here, just to be very clear, is what Medicare does, everyone else follows, right? So if, uh, if Medicare does it, then employers will start doing it. You know, general insurance will do it. Uh, Medicaid and other assistance programs will do it as well. And so that's why we're spending so much time on that. And the reality is many of us do have some coverage. You might likely be able to be counseled by your, your uh, physician and or maybe another healthcare specialist. Um, you probably have access to bariatric surgery because uh, for those that are most at need, but it is kind of that middle ground around anti-obesity medications and other therapies where it seems as if people are 
of lacking treatment options. And so we, we spend a lot of time trying to get folks uh, in, in the middle, right? To get, get that coverage for folks uh, and moving forward. And we see progress. I will just wanna be very, very clear that we have seen progress. In fact, this week alone, I worked on a, a, a Medicaid a bill in Minnesota that's looking around adding, adding anti-obesity medications. Not done yet, but it's in progress, right? And so I think we're starting to see more and more of this coverage come across the country. So I, I do appeal to the audience members. If you're gonna ask your provider and they say, hey, that's not covered, challenge them a little bit on it, right? It may not be covered, right? But let's, uh, coverage is getting better every day. Well, Joe, I was going to actually ask you, what is the call to action? And so it yeah. sounds like you've given one, um, but I want to pause. Is there anything else that you would say is the charge here, um, not just for people listening, but if you're a policymaker, if you're a physician, a community leader, uh, churches, faith-based organizations, what role can everyone play in advancing this? And what would you say is that call to action? Right. Yeah. So that individual call to action to me is, is always my individual call to action is actually not to be afraid to ask for help with your obesity. Right. So I, I'm going to say that I've said it several times now. I'll say it again. But that from a policy of systemic wise, you know, really, we have to focus on making sure people have access to the continuum of care. And keep in mind that is evidence based prevention. Right. How do we prevent obesity? How do we make sure that these programs are actually put in your community and, and actually designed appropriately to meet the needs of the community that's in place. We have to address all the social determinants of health. I can actually talk all I want about, let's get insurance to cover these services, but if you don't have insurance in the first place, right, we, we haven't, we haven't uh, addressed that issue. And so we have to address those issues as well. And, and, I, and I really do think that we have to convince Congress to start by passing the Treat and Reduce Obesity Act. It's the start, right? We would then have comprehensive care under Medicare, and then I think we can push that down moving forward. When it comes to employers, faith-based groups, et cetera, I really would challenge you to take a look at your benefits. Take a look at what services you're offering. Many of you likely say, hey, we have a wellness program for our employees or our members, right, kind of thing. But is wellness enough, right? Remember, we, we heard those statistics from Dr. Stanford earlier, 80%. Of, of black women are affected by overweight or obesity. We're beyond just prevention in that group, right? We may have to look at other interventions as well. So have, are, are you doing a good enough job? If, if you're saying um, that you wanna do something about obesity, just having giving everyone a key to the corporate gym likely isn't enough, right? We have to have these more comprehensive programs in, phase, in place. And then finally, uh, one last point here on, on faith-based organizations. I think you have such an important role in addressing uh, health issues, right? And I think, you know, COVID has set that back a little bit, right? Because we're all going to church virtual and doing those things now. But also COVID proved that we have to focus more on chronic disease and specifically on obesity, right? Because of the consequences with it. And so as you're getting back together, as you're thinking of ways to be more creative and to support the health of your members, it's time to start thinking about obesity specifically and, and think about how we can do this again in an evidence-based way. You know, go to the folks like Dr. Stanford and others who are experts in this and actually find out what, this is not what you think might work. This is what the evidence says will work. And I think that's part of our challenge sometimes is a lot of people think they know what will work. And the reality is the evidence shows it doesn't, right? It's actually something different that works. And so just, just my challenge to the faith-based groups to, to think about that quite, um, quite strongly, and, and, but, but take an opportunity here, especially uh, in light of COVID. Well, I see Nikki there uh, re kind of reacting to some of that, and we were going to kind of head to the patient perspective next. And Joe, thank you for highlighting some of those pieces 
Um, you know, Nikki, I shared that I had a chance to learn a little bit about your patient journey, but I'd love for you to share it for those that might just be meeting you for the first time. Um, so can you, you just share a little bit about your patient journey towards health and wellness? And what are the biggest barriers in your opinion or in your ex expert experience um, that patients have in accessing information, resources, and referrals to proper care? Um, and then finally, why do you think it's important for patients to have access to obesity specialists like Dr. Cody? Sure. Um, well, uh, my, my journey toward uh, better health and addressing my weight uh, started back in um, 2008. Uh, well, I would say 2007 is when I really started um, uh, working toward it. Um, you know, at my highest weight, I was about uh, 350 pounds and I had these two small children. I wanted to get healthier. Um, I sought out uh, bariatric surgery. I did get a little bit of the runaround um, from my insurance company. That's a whole other story. Um, but finally, in the early part of 2008, I, I was able to have gastric bypass surgery. And that really sort of was a launching pad for, you know, that was just, that's very much the first step to a bunch of changes in my life that have led to where, where I am now. Um, as a result of that, of course, I, I started focusing in a lot more on my weight and my health. Um, but then also I, I became sort of holistically more aware of, of different health issues, you know, with gastric bypass in particular, there's, you know, vitamin supplementation that has to happen. There's blood work that has to happen. There's this follow-up that has to happen. So you really do have to stay on top of it and pay attention. And, you know, here I am, uh, you know, 13 years uh, post-op and, you know, still having to, you know, work with my doctors to make sure that my health is up to par because when you have uh, bariatric surgery, no matter what kind of surgery, but I would say, especially with like sort of the malabsorptive surgeries like the gastric bypass, your body just simply doesn't work exactly like everybody else's body does. So you sort of have to educate yourself a lot about how your body works, um, which sort of leads me into some of the challenges that I see from a patient perspective. One of which being that, you know, for the average patient, you know, when you think of where healthcare can can live or die, can advance or, you know, stop dead in its tracks, it really is, in my opinion, at the uh, primary care physician level. Most people will go see their doctor if they have some sort of problem. Um, but primary care physicians inherently, I mean, I, I, and Dr. Stanford could probably speak on this. I don't think that they are automatically have any sort of specialized training in obesity, even though obesity is such a widespread, um, uh, issue in the medical community. Um, a lot of them certainly don't have a lot of experience with bariatric patients and malabsorptive bariatric patients. So that's led to like, uh, a lot of adventures on my part, but then also, you know, uh, folks who follow me on social media, I hear a lot of those sorts of things because you have to sort of navigate that structure. So if you think about the person who is just coming in for the first time, they, they know that they need to address their weight. They know that they have health problems and things like that. And you meet your primary care physician. A lot of how that proceeds is predicated on sort of the philosophy, I guess, of your primary care physician. They can either choose to open a lot of information up to you and say, hey, there are these obesity specialists. You can go to a dietitian. You can do this. You can do that. Or they could say, you know, what my, my children's pediatrician said to me for, for years and years and years as I watched, you know, them struggle with their weight as children is, oh, well, you know, just eat half of your plate and go for a walk every day. <laughs> and so it was so frustrating. And thank goodness they had me as a mother who I knew that there were things beyond that that could be done. But 
for a lot of people, when you go to your primary care physician, uh, there's like a power dynamic going on there. They are the doctor, they have the medical knowledge. Um, they are telling you, you know, sort of making a value judgment, like you're, you're eating too much, you're not moving enough. They're not addressing the fact that there are all of these other reasons why you may struggle with your weight. And they're not telling you, you know, what your resources are beyond what their specialization is. Um, a lot of times people don't know whether they can or how to go directly to a specialist. And then one of my experiences that has marked so many points of my personal journey is the lack of sort of coordination. Like I, I, I eventually sort of got fed up with it all and moved all of my care into the same medical health system. So at least all of my records were digitized under the same medical health system. Um, but it can be, you know, my, my bariatric surgeon isn't inherently connected with my primary care physician, isn't inherently connected with my dietitian. None of these people are talking to each other. So it's my job to sort of go back and forth between these people. Um, to, to manage my own care. And it's a lot. And when you think about all of the stressors that we've already talked about, um, especially that Black women face, you know, constant stressors from, from the effects of systemic racism to, you know, a lot of times being, you know, the head of household in their household. Uh, myself, I'm a single mom, so I've been raising two kids by myself. It's a lot to sort of expect all of what life expects. And then I have to be like sort of my own medical caseworker <laughs> in a lot of um, instances. And I see that as a barrier because like, honestly, in my opinion, if, if I could just go to the doctor and say, hey, I wanna address my weight and then have that, that, that practitioner come back to me and say, okay, let's have a real conversation about it. Let's talk about what we can do. Uh, let's get you connected to some, some folks and sort of lead the journey from that point forward. That would just make, I feel like it would make the journey so much easier and would make it more likely for people to follow through that if they didn't have to figure out everything themselves. Curated from more than 3,000 major newspapers, magazines, and journals, the AMA Morning Rounds newsletter delivers the top stories in healthcare right to your inbox Monday through Friday. Subscribe today and check out all the AMA's free newsletters at ama-assn.org my inbox. That's ama-assn.org slash my inbox. My background is in breast cancer. And, you know, when you think about the fact that obesity is a chronic disease and you think about the fact that we've fought so hard in that space to get patient navigation and to advance, you know, community health workers to close many gaps and to hear what you're outlining, um, for me, I, I'm hearing, you know, maybe that's the the next advocacy piece. Um, you know, how are you working to close those gaps and make sure that you're not walking that path alone? Um, you know, empowered people are certainly empowered patients, but I get it. And especially when you've got that mama bear factor, you're trying to revive yourself and your household as well. Um, so thank you for really highlighting those real um, factors that we all face. So I'm going to actually head back to Dr. Fatima and Joe. And we wanted to have an opportunity to hear what progress you've made and um, what uh, best practices or studies or research um, you can kind of speak to that people that are listening um, may want to look up. Um, we talked about evidence-based practices. Is there anything you'd like to highlight in the past year? Absolutely. Um, I published 39 um, peer-reviewed papers last year, so it was a busy year for me. But there are two that I really want to bring out that I hear Nikki talking about her experience, and I think about the physician piece of the puzzle. Where are we failing our patients? 
um, and we are failing them because we have not been educated about the disease of obesity. Now, not me, I did three years of fellowship in obesity, but, but let's talk about what people are receiving when they go to medical school, residency and fellowship. So I published at the beginning of 2020, a paper that um, was published in the International Journal of Obesity, where I looked across the entire world to see what's being taught in medical schools, residencies and fellowships surrounding obesity. And it's really a dismal state. No one is teaching obesity. That's, that's really the answer to the question. And we can't highlight one country as being the exhibit for how we should be here in the United States. No one is doing a good job despite the worldwide prevalence of obesity as the most prominent chronic disease in the entire world. So that's number one. Just within the last two weeks, um, in the Journal of the National Medical Association, I looked at all of the medical board examinations from pediatrics to internal medicine, family medicine, surgery, anesthesiology, to see what is being covered on the topic of obesity on medical board exams. Dismal state. Of the 24 American board exams, we were able to look at the content outlines for 23 of them, and obesity is minimally covered amongst all of them. What I can tell you as physicians is that we spend a lot of time studying as we study for the test. We study for what's important. How do we pass the test? We pass the test based upon what they say is important. If obesity is not being covered on all of the board exams, it must not be important. We aren't learning it. And so what, you, what they tell you to do is turn to your doctor. And unfortunately you turn to your doctor and your doctor knows less about obesity than you do, unfortunately. It's really the reality. Um, now there has been a shift in the last year. We have seen more doctors become certified by the American Board of Obesity Medicine. There are now over 5,000 physicians that are certified in obesity medicine in the country. If you're trying to figure out where do you go, you just go to the American Board of Obesity Medicine site and you can actually search free of charge by zip code for doctors that are certified in your area. So that is a major shift, a major improvement. We had a little over 4,000 doctors last year. We've added an additional thousand. So we are making some progress. But we're talking in the order of over hundred million adults with obesity. I just want to put that in context, 5,000 over hundred million we still have a significant disconnect in terms of the needs. In terms of those of us that have actually done fellowship training in obesity medicine, only about 50 people in the country who've completed fellowships in obesity medicine. 50, 100 million adults, and we have kids, I see children and adults. We still have a lot of work that needs to be done. But we do want your doctors to be a trusted source of information. We just need better education, and this needs to be a thrust, a focus point, I'm going to, Tammy, if we're thinking about policy points, Joe, think about policy points. We need to put the pressures on medical schools, residency programs, fellowship programs, the board examinations to test this material because people are going to come walking through the door and we're going to continue to say to them, eat less, exercise more, which is exactly what Nikki heard. Oh, you know, if you just eat half of this. Is this really going to happen? I can tell you, I did my residency training in South Carolina. I'm in Boston now, I'm from Atlanta. I don't, I sound like a news reporter where nobody ever can pick up where I'm from. But when I was in South Carolina, seeing young boys that were 15 years old with body mass index, and just a note to the audience, anything above 40 is considered severe, but you're seeing people with body mass index of 65. And my note to them based upon what I was taught, oh, well, can you just drink skim milk and maybe, maybe you can do a little bit more exercise. They're carrying 250 pounds in excess. And we're thinking a change to skim milk 
and a little bit more exercise is going to, to bring down in any substantial way that degree of excess weight, that is deplorable. And I really am frustrated with the medical community as a whole. I would lose my medical license if I were to treat diabetes in that same way. Someone came in with uncontrolled diabetes and I tell them, you know what, if you could just eat a little less sugar, you know, and just move a bit more and then come back and see me. They end up in the hospital with severe diabetes and may die from that. Similarly, you can die from your obesity. We know it increases morbidity and mortality, but it's perfectly fine for me just to say what Nikki was hearing from her um, doctors about what she should do for her children, her daughters that were born into this family where obesity was commonplace. And I do, and I would be remiss if I did not say this before I turn it over to you, Joe, is that weight is more heritable than height. And I always wanna make sure that we get that across. Weight is more heritable than height, which means that if we have families in which there is obesity, the likelihood that your children will have obesity because of that genetic and epigenetic function is on the order of 50 to 85% likelihood. That's a higher con contribution to who you are than if your parents are tall. Like if your dad was Shaq, for example, you know, there's a high likelihood you'll be tall. Um, although his wife was short, so maybe not, you know, but the whole point is, is that we see tall parents and we presume tall children. When we see parents that have obesity, unfortunately, the children and or the grandchildren, and I'm taking care of some families here at the weight center where I'm taking care of great grandparents, grandparents, parents, and children, four generations. And you see that continuum along that line and particularly in communities of color. So I just, I mean, that's a lot that's happened in the last year. We could keep going on and on. Please read those pieces that I've published on obesity and systemic racism in the Journal of um, General Internal Medicine, um, other pieces um, that really allude to that, like we talked about in terms of the education realm. My goal is to change the narrative. And I think we can do it, but it's going to take all hands on deck. And we in the medical community need to step it up because we are not, we're failing our patients. We're not doing a good job. Well, thank you for your candor. Joe, was there anything else you want to highlight from the patient advocacy perspective? Yeah, so just, just two things that, uh, and one Dr. Stanford alluded to is around training. So actually a, a very curious program, this was a positive in my mind that I participated in this year. And I actually know Dr. Stanford, we've already communicated about you participating in the next year is actually we, we participated in a medical training program for chief residents, right? That was actually in internal medicine, teaching them about obesity. Now as a weekend course, right? That's not enough, but it's a start to me that we're actually starting to see more, more folks interested in that space. And this was put on by a group called the Primary Care Metabolic Group. And, but it was excited, exciting to see actual residents who are excited about helping people with their obesity, right? And actually the, the messaging that came through is just such a positive one, right? Again, your provider can be a partner in addressing your obesity, right? Not, not, a, not a barrier. So then the other area I just wanted to highlight that that's just been interesting that's changed over the last year has been um, actually related to COVID, right? And that is the vaccine allocation. So for actually for the first time that I could remember, there was actually an advantage to having obesity. And that was in many states, you could actually access the COVID vaccine uh, as because it's considered a chronic disease and moving forward. And to me, that was actually a little bit of progress, right? We actually saw uh, state regulators, federal regulators for sure, recognized obesity as a chronic disease and as a long-term health risk. And so I think it was important that 
that happened. Now, let's be honest with you, there were some notable exceptions. There were some states that didn't do it, right? So we still have work that needs to be done and actually some regions that didn't prioritize uh, people with chronic disease and like obesity. But um, it, it, to me, it was a bit of progress when it comes to how people are thinking about obesity. Did you wanna speak to that, Nikki? Yeah, I just wanted to say, I think it is great that that was recognized in vaccine administration. Um, where where I, I feel from the patient perspective, we have a lot of work to do is with the notion on the patient side that that's somehow cheating or cutting in the line or that they don't deserve to have the the vaccine first because of obesity, because we, we've made it like that, you know, like I said, the value of the person or the type of person that you are because you have obesity. Um, because I, you know, as soon as I, I think I heard Heard it from you, Joe, and I started shouting it from the rooftops. I'm like, look, if you are, you know, otherwise eligible, you know, if your if your state is in the stage where it says you have, you know, if you have a medical condition, you can get the vaccine. You can get the vaccine on this basis. You know, call somebody, and you know, that's a lot of what I got back from people. Is, oh, I don't want to use that. You know, I haven't really taken care of myself. Why should I be ahead of the line of so and so and such and such? And you know, so that I, I did see that dynamic a lot on social media. Well, I actually, that takes us to our next question, and I was going to ask you and Tammy, but before I ask you the question around stigma, um, I want to just let everyone know we're going to shortly get to the Q&A that you've been sharing, so thank you. Um, if you have a question, feel free to put it in the chat, uh, I'm sorry, in the Q&A box, and uh, we will definitely get to those. Uh, we're going to stop uh, and hear from Tammy and Nikki around the stigma and um, some of the historical injustices and systemic racism um, that we know exist. And how can you actually work past that um, to build uh, trust? And if you have any examples that you've seen have worked well in your um, space, I know the Black Women's Health Imperative has been a leader in this area, um, bringing in trusted voices um, and other initiatives. But do you have any thoughts or things that have seemed promising this year? And I'm assuming that's for me. So yes, you know, in short, um, Black Women's Health Imperative, we have, you know, really been working to um, educate around, as, as we've heard already from many of the other panelists, recognizing obesity as a chronic disease, and just educating um, using the first person language um, and so that we are not creating stigma and bias for individuals that suffer from obesity. Um, and so we have an exciting, um, we have an exciting initiative that we um, are in the process. Um, we've been working on for the last few months. Um, and I guess sort of to back up, yes, I mean, trusted messengers are very key. I mean, we just talked about the vaccine allocations and the, the um, and, and folks for obesity being able to, uh, who suffer from obesity being able to um, um, get in front of the lines of the vaccine. Um, and what we've seen there is that trusted messengers are key in the community. Um, you know, for example, Black Women's Health Imperative, um, Dr. Stamper having into the Black community and HBC uh, medical schools just re really being a part um, of that. And so Black Women's Health Imperative has teamed up. Um, we're really excited about it with Healthy Women. They're leading women's um, health experts um, and commenced a partnership to, to raise awareness of obesity as a disease and a national health crisis um, in a manner that's free of stigma, judgment, and bias. Um, we have, it's called, and we've developed, it's called um, Reclaim Your Wellness. It's a multifaceted, multicultural campaign, which will focus on making obesity um, a healthcare priority, um, while improving the lives of people with obesity, changing how the world sees um, them, prevents and treats obesity as a disease, and ensuring that people living with obesity have access to science-based comprehensive care. 
um, and we're delivering tailored educational and lifestyle content and resources, along with interactive tools, uh, podcasts, and stories for real women on the physical and emotional impacts of obesity. Um, and so we, um, we also convened a, a webinar series, uh, which um, Dr. Stanford and Joe um, have participated in, um, which have been very successful, um, with a webinar series um, with experts to elevate the conversation. Um, so again, um, we, we um, also had exciting fitness information and healthy cooking sessions, um, as well, again, as really focusing on the continuum of care. Um, and we most recently, which Joe participated in, we had a Reclaim Your Wellness program um, around when diet and exercise are not meeting your goals. Um, and so we have that really uh, sometimes a difficult conversation in the Black community about what are your other options and focusing on that and sort of shifting the conversation. Uh, but yes, we um, we found that this has worked really well. It has great response. Um, and we're looking forward to continuing um, the Reclaim Your Wellness um, campaign. Well, thank you. That was comprehensive. And um, at the end, we'll share a little bit more on how people can connect with you and learn where to find some of these tools. I have seen this on social media. I've seen it in articles about BMI. So uh, is BMI correct for women of color? And it says, I know personally the weight they have for me uh, to be within their guidelines is putting me at a size three. This is not good. Um, so I'm not sure if Dr. Fatima would like to start or if anyone else would want to wait. Oh, I'm I am ready. I was ready before you finished the question. I'm um, actually redrew the BMI um, lines um, in May of 2019 in the Mayo Clinic proceedings, where I actually utilized data from the National Health and Nutrition Examination Survey to see what the BMI cutoffs would be, for example, for Black women, white women, Hispanic women. Um, and actually, believe it or not, for Black women, the, the BMI cutoff does shift up a little bit. I noticed I said a little bit. So somewhere usually on the order between 31 and 33 using BMI criteria, a BMI greater than or equal to 30 is characterized by obesity. So I wanted to redraw these. I want us to give the historical perspective of the BMI charts. It was developed based upon the Metropolitan Life Insurance Tables from the 1930s. Um, and those BMI charts did not include people that look like me or many of us that are on this panel today. And so I wanted to see how much it shifts. Now notice I said 31 to 33, so not major shifts. I think there are a few key things that I want you to note when you're working with your doctors. And my patients will universally tell you this. I never, ever, ever give them a target weight. Let me tell you, they try. They may have been with me for 10 years. Now, well, Dr. Stanford, what weight should I be? I will not give you a target weight because it's about you reaching the happiest, healthiest weight for you. Okay, that's extremely important. And that's for you, not your sister or your brother, because I also take care of a lot of families and you try to compare within your family how one person did with X strategy. It's the happiest, healthiest weight for you. We should use a lot of different factors. Yes, are we paying attention to weight? Am I looking at percent change over time? Absolutely. But we should be paying attention to where that weight is distributed. That's even more important. If it's around our midsection, it's around all of our important organs, like our liver, our heart, et cetera. So we wanna pay more attention. I will give you a target waist circumference. And in terms of measuring, you wanna measure at the umbilicus or the belly button. Umbilicus sounds really smart, right? But at your belly button, tape measure around the circumference. And we do have target waist circumference for women, 35 inches or less, for men, 40 inches or less. Let's combine that with looking at something like weight status. BMI is a, a good population-wide measure, but like you said, doesn't completely take into account the differences and the nuances. What we do know about black women and black men even is that we carry more subcutaneous adipose tissue. 
more stored in the hip, buttock, and thigh region. So there is an actual genetic difference that we see when we look at studies that start in children and adolescents and go into adulthood, differences where where fat is positioned. So it's not just that number on the scale, please don't go by a target number that you need to get to to fit into some box. It's about getting to the happiest, healthiest weight for you. So hopefully that, that gives you my thoughts on BMI and, and not being the end all be all for how we evaluate patients in terms of overweight and obesity. I think the only thing I'll add, and I agree with everything that Dr. Stanford said, but I just something that I, I like to reinforce to folks is that it is your healthcare provider's job to diagnose you with obesity. Okay, just because we have BMI charts, I do not believe people should be self-diagnosing themselves with obesity, right? Let your healthcare provider do that. The definition of obesity is having extra adiposity or body fat that harms your health, right? You need your healthcare provider as part of that conversation. So just, just a warning, I think, I think a lot of people have a tendency to look at that and they diagnose themselves and then they don't go ask for that help again. I think you have to engage your healthcare provider about that topic. Excellent. Nikki, were you wanting to weigh yeah. in as well? Yeah, I just wanted to weigh in because part of that question was uh, something about if I was the correct BMI according to the scale, I'd be a size three and that's not good. And that, that's also something that, you know, obviously this is not scientific. This is just anecdotal, but I speak to lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of folks uh, like myself every single day. And one trend that I have tended to notice is that, and this is was even a trend with me when I think back to before I had um, weight loss surgeries that I didn't have the same desires and expectations um, as I've seen a lot of uh, particularly white women express in losing weight. Like when I speak to white women who have had weight loss surgery, you tend to hear that they want to be like a size two or size four or whatever. Um, I think the lowest size going in, and this is something I actively ask people on my Facebook group, there's a couple thousand people in there, like, what do you want? What do you want to expect to happen um, as a result of your weight loss surgery? I think the lowest size, like clothing size I hear, like Black women tend to say is maybe a size 12. So, and then I see what I also see on the other end is when we're losing weight after weight loss surgery, we start to really freak out that we're going to get too small. And some women like deal with that with their doctors. Some women deal with that by like trying to like, you know, slow down the, the weight loss ourselves by whatever means we know how to do that. Um, but that, but to me, all of, all of that says, and it sort of agrees with my cultural experience that weight was not presented to me as quite the same thing as in mainstream media. I was never expected to look like a Barbie doll. I was never, you know, my, my mom very much railed against that sort of, that sort of imagery, but also, you know, in my community, women with the big hips, the big, you know, backside, you know, the full, you know, the ample chest, these women were celebrated and lifted up and this is really beautiful. So it's like, as a result of that, I feel like a lot of black women don't have that same, you know, if you, if you talk about, that's why I'm a, I'm, I'm a big advocate of talking about the health aspect of it, because, you know, you may, uh, you know, you may not want to get down to a size three, but there may be a size for you where, where it's the tipping point for your diabetes or your uh, blood pressure or whatever. And, and like uh, Dr. Stanford said that, you know, whatever health healthy weight for you, even if it maybe is a little smaller than what you originally went in wanting to be. Thank you. This is amazing. I love having that intersection of voices because we are going to have different perspectives. Um, and this question actually probably will have the same uh, level of different perspectives, but uh, it's about obesity being a challenge. Um, uh, and it says, unless we address mental health trauma that Black women face, uh, eating is often a drug of choice, regardless of the socioeconomic and educational status of many of our women. 
have the panelists focus on mental health as a key driver of obesity in our community. Um, so I'll open this up and see if anyone wants to weigh in on this. Yeah, no, I, I want to jump in because that's just what I do. Um, all of you that know me on this panel know me well, and that's what I do. But um, when we um, address comprehensive treatment to obesity in a tertiary level care center, um, our center involves the following in your initial workup. Every single patient that we see over the age of 10 um, meets with an obesity medicine physician like myself, a psychologist that's specifically trained in obesity, and a dietitian. And we make up your initial team. Each of those visits are an hour in length. Um, to delve into each of those components. So really addressing the question of mental health concerns, um, often mental health is a huge component, but it's not just the mental health in terms of the trauma or racism that people experience. It may be even the drivers of some of the medications that we as docs prescribe leading to significant weight gain. Um, we know that several of the medications that are used to treat mood disorders, that are used to treat um, antipsychotic or antipsychotic drugs can cause significant amount of weight gain. I've seen upwards of 80 to 100 pounds from medications prescribed alone for mental health conditions cause that degree of weight gain. I have a little antidote when I think about my hairstylist here um, in Boston and I went in to see her and they kind of have you captive while they're doing your hair. Um, and she was talking to me about she had gained some weight. And so she was like, yeah, I started on this new medication. She had started on a drug called mirtazapine. And I was like, well, why did they start that one for you? And she was like, for my depression. I was like, yeah, but that one is likely to cause weight gain. I said, I wrote down on a sheet of paper for her to go to her doctor and have a shift to another drug called bupropion. Um, and when I came back to the hair salon, she had lost 18 pounds. Now I really think my hair should have been, you know, I should have gotten it done for free. Don't you guys think? Um, Cause that was free advice. But, you know, it shows you how we really need to think about all aspects of the mental health of a patient, including the medications that we may be prescribing, which are contributing to it, um, excess weight. So I have a lot to say there. I'm going to stop so that my other co-panelists can speak, but we do need to be addressing that issue and it's important to do so. And we believe with every single patient, um, whether you're a pediatric or adult patient. Is there a space to integrate several facets of medicine. So the intersection, again, of primary care physicians, therapists, nutritionists, fitness professionals, et cetera, um, to build a comprehensive resource network for patients. Um, so I'm not sure if there's some examples or evidence-based um, examples that you can speak to, uh, but I'm not sure, Dr. Cody, if this, uh, Fatima Cody, if, uh, Stanford, if this will be back to you, or if, Joe, you have an example that you'd like to highlight as well. well I can just mention that I think that the goal is, I think, for us to have more of these comprehensive management programs like Dr. Stanford's and, and there are, are just, but there are just a handful across the country, right? So what they're asking for, you know, okay, you have primary care, you have therapists, you have nutrition, you have fitness, all of that together, I think ultimately is the goal. The closest actually we've come to that is in bariatric surgery where they have these comprehensive programs that are like that. And I think the, the goal now is to move us towards a model where you have overall obesity medicine doing the same thing. I know a couple of the insurers are playing with it. We'll see what happens over time, but I'm hoping when we, uh, when we talk again next year, we might have a little more information on what, what those kind of, where, where there can be, where you can find resources about those comprehensive programs. What community grants exist um, that community and faith-based organizations can access to help fund their activities? Uh, does anyone have any insight on resources here? So I can yeah, jump in there too. Oh, sorry, yeah, go ahead. Joe, you go, you go first. You yeah. go first. No, okay. I, I yeah. So I just, yeah. Yeah. I, th I think the main, the main source of a lot of this funding is our friends at the Centers for Disease Control, right? And I just want to point out that 
I, something that's very much a positive. So, so last year, um, they put $3 million in the budget for uh, some social determinants of health work around kind of chronic disease prevention. And that uh, we, were, we were excited because there was zero before that, right? And we, and we were excited. And then, you know, we, as a community, we were going to say, well, let's put 50 million in this year. And then the president actually released his budget and he put 153 million in. So we had to revise all our letters. But I think in the, in the 22 fiscal year 22 proposed budget, there's actually a lot more resources being allocated in this space. So assuming that uh, that moves through and, and, and ultimately uh, passes, uh, and obviously there's, uh, you know, there's always challenges with that, but there's, there's probably an opportunity for a great deal more funding, especially around linking the social determinants of health issues with obesity. I, I think there's a lot of potential there. So another question regarding uh, the shifts in school around home ep economic classes and generations that may not know how to cook and therefore depending on fast food. Uh, does anyone have any thoughts on home economic and physical education revamping that's needed? Um, I will say that I came from the generation of kids who still had home ec. I didn't learn to cook significantly in home ec. <laughs> I learned to cook, I learned to cook from my mom. Um, and I learned to, and, and in many ways, uh, and this is just my experience. I don't want to say this is emblematic of anybody else's experience, but I was really lost when I started to try to cook uh, better uh, and better methods of cooking, better quality of food. I did not like, for example, with fish, I didn't know how to cook fish if I wasn't frying it because that's how I was taught to cook fish. So, you know, it, it did take a little bit of education. I ended up founding a, a website called Bariatric Foodie um, with, and our motto is play with your food. Um, and that that was really my way of saying, hey, I'm new to this, you're new to this, let's go on this adventure together. Because there's so many people who are my age and older. And the, the, the following of my blog is actually like my age and older. It's like 45 to 65 and you know we all had home ec and we still sort of have trouble with the with the cooking um component of it but the other thing i wanted to weigh in and say is that in my day job i work for an organization part of what they do is sustainable development around the world and one of the ways that we've long since accepted that we have to address food security is not only in the introduction of healthier crops, but then you also have to come in and help people know what to do with those healthier crops. You know, in parts of Africa, they've introduced like certain sweet potatoes that that uh, ha are very nutrient rich for young children. But if the parents don't know how to prepare them or, you know, culturally, this is a food where we're introducing that that wasn't a part of your culture before and you weren't taught how to eat that way, there's that component. I think the same thing is true in the United States is like, you know, I think home economics can be if a curriculum is developed that that focuses on what what people need to know about cooking healthfully, as opposed to, you know, this is a pot and this is what kind of knife this is and all of that good stuff. Well, thank you so much for weighing in on that on Nikki and Dr. Fatima, can you take us home with your closing thought? Absolutely. Um, I think the key thing that we want to note from all of the different perspectives is that number one, obesity is a disease. It's a real disease. It warrants treatment. It warrants care. It's particularly needed within communities of color due to the disparities that exist. Um, I'm committed to this work on all fronts, from the research to the policy to the advocacy, working with OAC, working with Tammy with Black Women's Health Imperative, having my girl Nikki um, work through what it's like to be a patient having overweight and obesity. And I think we need to hear all, all of these voices. 
Well, thank you for everyone for joining us. Uh, you brought so much richness to the conversation and we look forward to advancing this uh, goal to end uh, obesity disparities. Be well. This episode was originally a panel session as part of the 2021 National Minority Quality Forum's annual leadership summit on health disparities and health brain trust. I'm Todd Unger, and this is Moving Medicine, a podcast by the American Medical Association. You can subscribe to Moving Medicine and other great AMA podcasts anywhere you listen to yours, or visit ama-assn.org slash podcasts. Thanks for listening.